Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer because Scripture teaches that if we are not in fellowship with God, then we are not walking by the Spirit. When we are not walking by the Spirit, the only other option is that we are living according to the flesh, the sin nature, and therefore everything that we produce is uh, the result of the sin nature influence and therefore has no eternal value. When we confess our sins, Scripture says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that instant of that applied forgiveness, we are restored to fellowship. We are again uh, able to walk in the light, walk by the Spirit, and to be filled by the Spirit. And it is only when we sin that that is broken. So we know that we always need to begin by making sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have you to come to in prayer, that we know that you know of all of our requests, all of our needs, all of our desires from eternity past. But we know that you desire for us to bring these petitions before you, to bring these requests before you to come before you in prayer as we begin our study of your word, uh, that you might guide and direct our thinking. And as we think through the scriptures and the implication and application of the scriptures in our own lives, that as God the Holy Spirit uh, fills us, he enables us to see how these truths apply to our thinking, to our lives, that we may learn to live in a way that uh, glorifies you. We're so thankful that we have this opportunity to study your word and to be refreshed by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study of Jude in the uh, previous couple of lessons. I focused on the doctrine of the inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture. This is so important because Scripture is the foundation for what Christians believe. If the scriptures are not without error and are not the word of God, then they are just another collection of writings by learned men about, but simply expressing their opinions about life, simply expressing a culturally nuanced view of life from uh, Jews who lived in the Middle East throughout a period of about maybe five or six hundred years to listen to the uh, liberal critics of Scripture. So then the Bible would have no more authority than any other uh, any other other book. In contrast to that, we've seen that the Bible claims to have exclusive divine authority, that it is from God himself that he worked in and through the writers of Scripture so that without 
uh, without over without uh, uh, overriding their personality or their individual styles or their backgrounds or their own uh, vocabulary, God was able to so superintend or govern or oversee what they wrote that the final product was without error. It expressed exactly what God intended it to express, that this inspiration extended down to the very words of Scripture so that when we look at different words that are chosen by the writers of Scripture, uh, it's not just a matter of choosing or selecting one synonym or another synonym uh, for a stylistic reason, but there is something about these very words that are chosen that God has selected to communicate precisely and uh, exactly what he wants us to learn. And so this calls upon us to be engaged in a study of God's word and to make it the absolute authority uh, absolute authority in our life. But this is a point that's always a challenge. It is the authority of God that has been challenged in all of the major battles in all of history, both human and angelic. It began with Satan's uh, Lucifer, Lucifer's challenge to God's authority is expressed in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, as well as in Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, verses 12 through 18. These describe the original uh, fall of Lucifer, who then influenced human beings. And in their uh, uh, yielding to his temptation, the human race was plunged into sin and is in it born, and every human being is born in a state of rebellion against God. And the only solution is a divine solution. The only solution is to focus on the promise of God to provide a Savior and that he has fulfilled that promise in the person of Jesus Christ. But this is always under attack in every generation, in every uh, decade. There are new assaults. They may be uh, different. They may be nuanced a little differently. They may have a different vocabulary. They may seem to come from a different vantage point. But fundamentally, there are the same basic assaults today as there were a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago. Because Satan wants to destroy uh, your belief in the Word of God and your uh, submission to the authority of God. And that is the role of every creature to the creator. Therefore, because there's always these attacks, we always have to be on guard. That's what the epistle of Jude is about, is being on guard and contending for the faith. That's what we're going to look at uh, in this particular uh, lesson. We're going to be contending for the faith. Now, that idea of contending for the faith, a set body of doctrines that's unchangeable, that's immutable, that is uh, established objectively by God is is not culturally acceptable today. You, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, you have set yourself over against all of pop culture. You have set yourself over against all of the uh, opinions of the masses and the elites in our culture, and you are increasingly a minority. This morning I read a statistic that Approximately 7% of Americans are evangelicals, and the term evangelical itself is a fairly broad term. We at West Houston Bible Church are part of a subset of evangelicals. We are on the conservative edge, the conservative end of the spectrum of evangelicals. We are... Uh, we believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. We believe in dispensational truth. 
this makes us an even greater uh, minority. And when it comes to looking at various things related to the the implications of Scripture for how we understand society, how we understand our culture, uh, the uh, various uh, social assaults that we uh, we see today, assaults against uh, marriage, assaults against the family, assaults against uh, personal responsibility and assaults against uh, the role of government versus the role of the individual. And as uh, with each step, with each one of these ideas that I have just mentioned, as we take our stand on the scriptures, what we find is we become increase, part of an increasingly small or narrow uh, group of, of, of Christians. And if you spread it out to the culture, we become an increasingly small group of people. In contrast to 40 or 50 years ago, it's just amazing to see how within conservative, dispensational, fundamental Christianity – evangelical Christianity since the end of World War uh, II, there has been just such a massive, massive shift. And some of this has occurred just within the last uh, 20 years. There have been assaults on the nature of the church, assaults on the role of pastoral ministry. These had their roots that go back into the late 70s or early 70s even. But they reached sort of a critical mass of popularity by the early 90s, and we've seen the very face of of uh, the uh, the church in America shift from from small traditional churches that were biblically based to mega churches that often have uh, even if it's correct theology, it is superficial theology and pastors who are afraid to teach more than just the surface of Christianity because they're afraid that, that it will challenge people too much. It will rub them too much the wrong way. And so, uh, they, they just stay at a very surface level of, of, of scripture. And if all you ever do is feed your children baby food, then they will, they will be malnourished and they will be ineffective and they will not ever grow to physical uh, maturity, and they call that child abuse. And what we have today is an enormous number of abusive pastors who are malnourishing their congregations, and it is the pastoral abuse of the worst kind, not the kind of pastoral abuse that people normally focus on where you have uh, some kind of quasi-cult or cultic situation where some pastor is dictating uh, every aspect of the life of every congregant, but it is malpractice because the pastor who is in charge of feeding his congregation refuses to feed the congregation. And so they are malnourished, and they are sick, and they are unhealthy. And uh, this is part of what Jude is writing about, is is challenging this congregation that they need to contend for the faith. And if they're not willing to contend for the faith, then what will happen is these uh, evil doers and evil teachers will take over the control of this congregation and it will be rendered not only spiritually ineffective, but they will become spiritually inoperable and they will be destroyed, uh, destroyed spiritually and judged by God. But this whole idea of contending for the faith is not culturally acceptable today. If you, we are going to proclaim that we are to defend the faith of Scripture, 
then we're going to come under attack, even by many Christians, because they believe that contending is necessarily contentious. But that's not true. That That is a total abuse of of language. And, and we, as we look around, we ought to be asking the question, from whence did these changes come? How did the church go through this? Well, we can give the broad answers of a certain amount of negative volition and trends towards emotionalism and subjectivity, but we need to understand some of these trends in a little more uh, uh, specificity in order to be able to cor- correctly perceive, understand where we are, how we got here, and what you and I need to do in order to be a corrective for this. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to change, reverse the course of our culture, but that in terms of our own lives, we need to understand what it means to contend for the faith. Now, in the previous lessons, I focused on the first part of Jude 3, where Jude writes, Beloved, while I was uh, very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in the first half of this verse, as I pointed out, we see an implicit uh, understanding of divine inspiration. This is not a passage that is explicitly teaching divine inspiration, uh, such as Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and 17, uh, where Paul wrote that, uh, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for what? Think, think it through with me. It's profitable for doctrine or teaching, that is, instruction, for doctrine, for reproof. Reproof means that the Bible is going to say you are wrong about something. You have uh, ideas and opinions that are, that, that are wrong. They're dead wrong. That's reproof. It's, it's a slap in the face. But we live in a culture today where that's that... Slapping someone in the face, reproving somebody is is wrong. That is one of their upper values, as we're going to see in this lesson, that reproof is wrong. That implies superiority, and, and that's arrogant, and that is, by definition, something that is wrong. But Scripture says that, that what the Word of God is supposed to do is to reprove us. It is supposed to straighten us out. It's supposed to tell us, you're wrong. But it doesn't just stop by saying you're wrong. It's it's for doctrine, for, for reproof, for correction. And that word for correction means to then straighten out the thinking. It's from a Greek word, the root of which is uh, the same word we have uh, that comes over into English as uh, orthodontist. He's someone who straightens out the teeth. And so the Word of God is designed to uh, straighten us out. Uh, we're reproved, we're, we are corrected, we're straightened out, um, and we're, then we're given instruction in righteousness so that we can keep on the path to righteousness. So for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction is righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, again, another politically incorrect term because we live in a world today when you talk about man, then you've just excluded women. And uh, there are a lot of women in our culture and a lot of women in the churches today who have been so indoctrinated uh, by the postmodern culture of 21st century America and late 20th century America that when they read something where they see that word man, there's something inside of them that begins to tighten up 
and, and vibrate because they've been taught again and again and again that this is just some sort of sexism, this is a, a gender exclusivism, and this in and of itself is wrong. And so they bring that mindset with them when they come to the Bible, and all of a sudden they read uh, a Bible where God is referred to as a he, where uh, men are emphasized, and they say, well, and, and we refer to the founders of Israel as the patriarchs, and if they have imbibed from the uh, poisoned well of our culture, then they these are negative words. These are bad words. They're evil words. Patriarchy. This is a horrible, evil thing. All patriarchy is designed to keep women under suppression, keep them in slavery so they can't do what they want to do. And so this is the, the these influences are all around us. And the younger that a person is, the more they have been influenced by by this kind of thinking, the more they've been brainwashed, the more that they have been uh, re-educated and reprogrammed by uh, the uh, education system of our culture, by the media of our culture, by uh, television shows, movies, songs, all of these kinds of things promote uh, this this value system. And uh, this sets their mind a certain way so that when they walk in the doors of a of a church like this, uh, you, there, there's a huge hurdle for them to uh, go over, uh, get past from the very beginning because they're hearing ideas and concepts that they've been taught were wrong. Now, even that even applies to Christian kids who've grown up in church because they 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 were taught one thing, but they caught something else. They caught a virus from their culture, which the Bible calls worldliness, and this virus has infected them, but they don't know they're sick with it. And I've known of people who have come here who should know better, ought to know better, young kids who grew up in, in a solid Bible-teaching church, and yet they've raised questions that they would only raise if they were thinking like an unbeliever. And yet they don't know it, and you try to expose it, and they don't want to admit it because I, they grew up in church, so there's a self-deception that's going on within their uh, within their arrogance. This is why I spent time in the last previous lessons talking about the authority of Scripture. We have to judge every area, every nook and cranny of our thinking by the light of God's Word because that is absolutely, and then we have to change it. And that it is not always something that is easy. We understand that God works behind the scenes in the process. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17, which I quoted a minute ago, is a verse that talks about the overt, the explicit inerrancy. Uh, an uh, inspiration of Scripture. God breathed out his word. But in this verse, we see uh, the I- implication of that, that, that on the human side, Jude w- was thinking about writing one thing and may have even started working on it to some degree when all of a sudden he had this compulsion, this necessity, that's the, the result of the work of God the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, like so many Christians today would, well, the Holy Spirit put it on my heart. He didn't say that, did he? He doesn't say, well, God moved me. He doesn't focus it on God, but but yet that's what he is implying. It is God who is at work uh, behind the scenes uh, bringing him to this point that he needed to address not what he initially thought he should address, but to address a completely different topics. So he says, I was different, I, diligent, I was making every effort, I was completely absorbed in a particular task, and I was giving a tremendous energy and effort to that task, which was to write to you concerning our common 
salvation, and here that it probably isn't just related to phase one salvation or justification, but probably focuses on the uh, entirety of the of the spiritual life. Now, you might say, well, what would be wrong with that? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for him to write, to teach us more about how to live our spiritual life? And, and see, part of the reason you ask that question, number one, is because you and I have been so uh, influenced by our culture that we think it's really all about me. It's all about me. It's all about my spiritual life. It's all about my spiritual growth. It's all about what I learn. It's all about the doctrine that I get. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture says that's that's part of it, but it's not all about you, and it's not all about me, and it's not all about our spiritual life. It is ultimately about ser- being able to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that certainly that we have to grow personally in our own spiritual life. But it, but the focus of that isn't about me. Ultimately, it is about serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and so this fits within a broader context uh, related to our spiritual life and spiritual growth, and that is the uh, what he shifts to the idea of contending earnestly. Uh, for the faith which was <clears throat> delivered once for all uh, to the saints. So let's look at this particular verse. He says, I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, but then I found it necessary. I had this necessity, this compulsion to write. Now, this is uh, the word here that is translated to write is a word that indicates uh, that it's just a, 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 an infinitive. It uh, completes the idea of the verb. It expresses his, his, his purpose. That his purpose was to write uh, to you. And then the next word is the word exhorting in the English. It ends with an ing, indicating this is not a finite verb. It is a participle. And a participle connected to the infinitive simply com- helps complete to fill out the idea. But, but participles are used in, as a modifier of verbs in order to give us some additional information about that. And so we need to ask the question, how does the concept of exhorting relate to the concept of writing? And what we'll see is this is a participle expressing purpose. I'm writing to you for the purpose of exhorting you. So this word that we find here is a great uh, Greek word that we find many times in the Scripture. It's a very common word to express the desire on the part of the writers of Scripture to move their audience from where they are to where they need to be, to challenge them, to urge them to a course of action, to push them and to motivate them to be engaged spiritually and to apply the Word of God to every area of their life. It is the Greek word parakaleo, and it is related to the noun parakletos, which is a title for God the Holy Spirit as our, it's often translated comforter, but that's that's a weak idea. That's a pusillanimous uh, translation. Actually, he is our strengthener. That's part one idea. He's the one who urges us. This word parakaleo has the idea of urging uh, someone to a course of action or pushing them or motivating them to a course of action. And so the God, the Holy Spirit, is our, our encourager, is the one who is pushing us 
forward in the Christian life. Now, you may be pushing back as a disobedient believer, and and he's not going to stop. He will continue to push, and you will continue to have this conflict within your soul until either uh, God takes you home and, and in the sin unto death or you decide to get right with God. Uh, this particular grammatical structure here is a present active participle, as I stated, which indicates that uh, the present tense indicates that it's uh, happening at the same time as the main verb. And the participle should be understand as a participle of, of a purpose. I'm, I write to you for the purpose of exhorting you to contend. Now, this word exhort is uh, one of those many biblical words like holy and righteous and redemption that we hear a lot. But when we hear certain words all the time, it, it, it tends to become white noise, and we don't really pay attention to it, and we're not really sure what it means. Uh, in terms of definitions, it has a range of meaning. It means to exhort, which means to challenge somebody to a course of action, to urge someone to a course of action, uh, to ask uh, or to press them earnestly to do something, to ask them to do something, to appeal to them to take a course of action, uh, sometimes translated uh, uh, to encourage them or to urge them, to incite them, to persuade them. This is the idea. Now, now, when it comes over to expressing the purpose of literature, uh, it's, it is a word that has the idea of, uh, a, 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 of a literary type. It is an exhortation. It could be a sermonic type. So it's similar to the epistle to the Hebrews. And so Jude is writing this as an exhortation. It's not going to be a doctrinal discourse like Ephesians or Romans. It's going to be written for the purpose of, of uh, getting the people in this congregation motivated to engage a problem that has already developed and is in their midst and is extremely uh, dangerous. And so he's writing them to challenge them, to urge them, to push them into a course of action. And that course of action is that they are to contend earnestly for the faith, to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, this Greek word is epagonizomai, and it comes from a root word you can see there in the middle that is agonizomai. I'm having a hard time pronouncing that for some reason. Agonizomai, like agony, agonizomai. And it has that idea of expressing a type of struggle. So at the root idea of epagonizomai, is the idea of a struggle, the idea of a fight, a, an idea of dealing with opposition. Now, having said that, we suddenly realize that we may have another problem, and that is that there are a lot of people today who don't want to fight. They, they, they just want to be left alone, just leave me alone, let me live my spiritual life, let me go pray in a corner, uh, let me memorize Scripture, let me go to Bible class, but I don't want to be involved in anything that may be considered uh, contentious or that I might be engaged in any kind of fight or any kind of battle. And one of the reasons is because, unfortunately, we're not mature enough as a lot of believers to contend in an uncontentious manner. Jesus was involved in a lot of contentiousness as the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and the Herodians opposed him, but he did not react in a contentious manner. He contended, but without being contentious. He challenged them. 
And as those who are in Christ, we are to carry out that same kind of role. We are to challenge the culture around us. We're not supposed to just let it go by. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, ruffle anybody's feathers. I don't want to make any waves. Uh, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jude is saying you have to make waves sometimes. We can't fight every battle. There are some of you here that uh, think that every, there's no hill too small to die on. We do have to pick our battles, but we need to be careful not to run from the battles because we just don't have time or we're not prepared. If you think that you're not prepared, then you need to be here at Bible class three times a week and you need to be listening to uh, lessons on the days that you're not here in Bible class. That's how you become prepared. That's how we become equipped for the battle. And that's the role of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And part of the work of the ministry is to contend earnestly uh, for the faith. This verb is a uh, present a passive, but it's only a passive in form. It's actually active in meaning. It's a present passive infinitive. It expresses a, a purpose again. We are to contend, contend uh, uh, for the faith. He, uh, Jude is writing to them for the purpose of challenging them to the goal or to the end result of contending earnestly for the faith. That this word, apagonizomai, means to strive for something, means to work against opposition. It, it, it would describe the work of an athlete who wants to win at the games. And so in order to win at the games, he has to train. In order to uh, train, he has to manage his time well. That means he has to not do some things that uh, he may, that may be good things to do in order that it not limit his, his training. He needs to manage his time so that he can spend a certain amount of time every day in training, in learning, focusing on that. Um, and, and he has to spend a certain amount of time then thinking that through. Uh, now, we all think, well, it would be great if I could give up my job. I, I work a job that demands 60, 70, 80 hours a week. How do I have time for this? Well, we understand the demands that everybody faces in terms of their job, in terms of their career. Maybe you're going to school, and it's very difficult to you to, for you to find time uh, to do this. I know in... Um, both in college and undergraduate work and in graduate school numerous times, you just are so overwhelmed with other people telling you what to read and what to study and what to learn that sometimes all you can do is grab five or ten minutes a day to study the Word. And that's fine. Don't limit that. Maybe you can listen to to uh, uh, something while you're working out or exercising or walking Maybe you can uh, just take five minutes, ten minutes, something like that. I remember years ago working with a seminary student, and he was trying to, to listen to a lesson, an hour lesson every day, and I said, listen to three lessons a week, listen 20 minutes every day. All of a sudden, it became manageable. He could do that. He could he could get up and listen to a lesson for 15 or 20 minutes, but an hour was just unrealistic. So sometimes people think that in order to accomplish certain goals, they have to do 
uh, certain things, it's just unrealistic. And rather than reducing the amount of time involved, they just quit doing it altogether. So just reduce the amount of time involved, but do something. And, of course, if you're not in that kind of a situation, then you should be consumed with the training, just like an athlete in preparation for the games, an athlete in preparation for for running. Now, maybe you're out of shape spiritually. Maybe you don't know a whole lot spiritually. Maybe you feel like you're still a spiritual infant. So you're sort of like the uh, 350-pound, six man who wants to run the Boston Marathon. So the first thing he has to do is something negative. Um, and now that's part of what I'm focusing on in this lesson. He has to do something negative. He has to get rid of all that excess weight. He has to go on a diet. He needs to lose weight, and he may not even be able to run initially because it hurts his knees, it hurts his hips, it hurts his joints, and he may not be able to uh, to even run, but he can do something. He can move. He can get on a bicycle. He can get on a treadmill. He can get on an elliptical machine. He can just walk up and down the driveway or walk up and down the street but with the combination of the negative, that is, not eating certain things, and the positive, that is, doing active exercise, then over the course of time, he can drop uh, 150 pounds. And if he sets his mind to it, he can do it. But if he doesn't set his mind to it, he will never accomplish it. It's up to that individual to do it. He has to say, yes, this is, this is a reasonable goal, and this is what I want to do, and therefore I'm not going to get, do anything that, that takes away from that goal. But as the weight starts to fall off and as he begins to lose that weight, it becomes easier and easier. Two things are happening. He's losing the things that hold him back, and he's increasing his stamina and his strength as he's doing moderate exercise, and that is building him up. And at some point, those lines cross, and he gets to the point where he can finally uh, walk a mile, run a, jog a mile, then run a mile, then two miles and three miles. And it, the more he does that, the more weight comes off until eventually he has uh, removed the excess baggage, uh, slimmed down, built up his strength so that he can go forward. That is contending earnestly uh, for that athletic contest. Spiritually, this means something different. We are to contend earnestly. We're to fight, strive, exert ourselves for uh, the faith. Now, the word translated the faith here is a word that uh, is simply the Greek word pistis. It doesn't have an article, which means it's it's emphasizing the Greek. An article may or may not make a word definite, like we have a, um, for example, have a bottle here. Uh, if I just say bottle, you're not sure what, what that is. You're saying I'm just talking about something a little more in the ideal. If I say a bottle, it could be any bottle. It could be this bottle or that bottle. It could be any bottle. If I say the bottle, then you know it's a specific bottle. But in Greek, the article doesn't function like that. For one reason, they don't have an indefinite article. They don't have an a, which would say like a bottle, which could be any bottle. Uh, they just talk about bottle or they have the article. So uh, uh, the use of the article could even imply indefiniteness, and the use or the lack of the article may imply definiteness. Often the article is left off of a word in order to emphasize its quality. In the beginning, uh, John writes, was the word, 
and the Word was God, and there's no article with God. So the emphasis is on the qualitative aspect of that, the essence of that noun. So it's a very clear statement that the Word is being equated to the essence of deity, the very essence of deity by the Apostle John. So here we're to contend for faith, the qualitative, the essence of faith, that is the Christian belief system. So it is accurately translated into English as the faith because that's the idea that is presented in, in, in the Greek. And the word that, the idea that it is the faith once for all delivered or once for all given, uh, to the saints indicates that there is a specific finite body of knowledge, a body of truth that is revealed or given to Christians. And it is that set body of truth that doesn't change over time that we are to fight for. We are to fight to preserve it, fight to proclaim it, uh, fight to thoroughly investigate it and, and, and study it. So we are to contend earnestly. This That word, once again, uh, epongenizomai, just emphasizes the very fact that it is to be a conscientious and dedicated uh, struggle, a conscientious and dedicated uh, struggle that we are to be, uh, to be involved in. Now I'm going to skip, let me bump through a couple of slides here that... Uh, we need to, I want to look at, uh, skip to the next slide here. So we see that this is a um, specific type of literature. It's designed to exhort people to challenge them to a specific course of action. But there's something else about this that we learn, and that is that this represents a specific kind of literature, a kind of literature that is found uh, in the ancient world as well as today. But in the ancient world, there were these various literary types or genres, categories of uh, literature, same as we have today, and this affected not only uh, written literature, but it also affected uh, preaching. And so there are certain types or styles of, of literature or styles of um, uh, styles of rhetoric, and so this one particular approach is called Parnassus. Parnassus and Parnassus is a literary or rhetorical uh, style of exhorting someone to a specific course of action. Now we've understood that as part of the meaning of the idea of exhortation. But within this meaning of exhortation, it's interesting in this style, the style was composed of two things. The style is composed of two things. And the first, uh, is encouragement, something positive. And the second is dissuasion, something negative. Go back to my example of the 350-pound, six man who wants to be a marathoner. The dissuasion is getting rid of the excess weight. The encouragement is the positive uh, exercise that's going to build strength and, and stamina. And so in Paranasis, you have uh, an exhortation literature, two things going on. One is something positive, this is what you should believe, this is what you should do, and something negative, you don't want to believe this, you don't want to believe that, you don't want to do this, you don't want to do, uh, do that. So it has the positive side of stating what should be done and why you should do it, but it also has a negative side 
of showing and explaining why the alternative is wrong or does not work. Now, we live in a world today where where this is being challenged in a lot of ways. Uh, it's not socially acceptable to focus on the negative. It's deemed as as critical. But the classic way of teaching or instructing anybody on anything was to not only teach it to them in a positive sense, this is what you should believe, but also to contrast that with either that which was wrong or wasn't quite right in order that by analyzing the truth in contrast to the partial error or complete error, someone develops a clear understanding of what they believe and why they believe it and how to uh, implement that into their life. So we learn by contrasting the wrong or the not quite right with that which is right. We understand pure white uh, only when we can hold it up in contrast to maybe eggshell white or in contrast to off-white or in contrast to uh, dirty white or, or some of these other uh, shades that we, uh, that we find. But what, what, there's something inherent in everything that I'm saying that runs counter to everything in our cult, contemporary culture today. And what is that? I'm using the terms right and wrong. When I use terms such as right and wrong, those terms imply some sort of external standard. Now, where do I get that standard? See, we live in a world today where uh, most people believe that the standard just comes from your culture or your subculture. You believe that way because you're an American. They believe it's another way because they're uh, European or because they're Russian or because they're uh, Muslim or because they're Buddhist. That's their culture. So how can you say something negative uh, uh, about them? And so this is any kind of evaluation like this is perceived as being wrong today. And we have a lot of people in our younger generation, by younger generation I mean 40 and under, where this type of teaching is inherently wrong. I mean, before they ever hear it, they know it's wrong because, oh, you're saying that what somebody believes and how somebody teaches something is is wrong, and you're just being judgmental and you're being critical. By definition, that's how they're, they're, they're approaching it. So you may have somebody, and I've had this happen here, somebody comes in and they listen to me teach where I juxtapose the truth of Christianity to either uh, or the truth of Scripture to false views that are taught within Christianity or false views that are taught in the world, and they say, well, you're, you're, you're emphasizing apologetics too much, or you're, you're being too critical of other people. I just want to know the positive. I don't want to know the negative. Well, that is that, that shows right away that you're operating on a pagan view of knowledge. You're operating on a pagan view of truth, and you have so inculcated and imbibed this from the culture that you don't even realize how pagan your thinking is. The very form of your thinking has been shaped by the culture in which you you have uh, grown and developed and in which you have been, uh, have been egg educated. And this is one of those things that you need to let the Word of God correct you on and slap you in the face and say, you're wrong. 
You're just dead wrong. You're thinking wrong because that's not how you learn. That's not how anybody in the Bible teaches. They all teach by virtue of polemics. You have polemics all through the Old Testament. Polemics are when uh, something is stated in a certain way that is in direct contrast to the popular view uh, that would be in the culture surrounding them. For example, when Moses said, that uh, that God uh, created the heavens and the, and the earth, and on the first day He created light, and He doesn't create the sun until the fourth day. If if you were coming out of an Egyptian culture, which the uh, uh, Israelites were at the time of the Exodus, when Moses when Moses wrote this, and if you had been influenced by the way the Egyptians thought, they deified the sun god as Ra. All, uh, this is deity. If God creates the sun, then um, the sun is 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 just another part of creation. It's not divine at all. That's a that's a polemic. That's a slap in the face to someone who believed uh, in Egyptian deities and Egyptian uh, religion. And you have example after example if, because you don't know Egyptian religion because you're ignorant of Babylonian religion. You don't understand the kind of thinking that went on in the in the Baal worship of the day. You don't hear it. You don't feel it. You're not committed to those things. But you look at what happens when Elijah goes up on top of Mount Carmel and he he is uh, challenging the priests of Baal and the uh, priests priests of the Asherah. To, uh, to this contest. I mean, that is a direct frontal assault. He is contending for the faith. That's one way of doing it. And he calls down fire from heaven. And then when God, God responded and, and completely burned up Elijah's offering and nothing happened to the offering of the uh, Baal worshipers, then after that there were consequences for their false belief and Elijah had them executed, all of them, according to that was the Mosaic law, they were to be executed for bringing idolatry into Israel. So he was perfectly correct in doing that. But see, in our culture today, that, that's just, that's just completely, uh, completely wrong. And so this is one of the things that we are facing today is there's been this, uh, the term is a worldview. Worldview simply comes from a, uh, the English translation comes out of a technical term in, in, in uh, German, Weltanschauung, which has to do with how someone perceives or, or understands the world around them. And whenever you think in terms of understanding a worldview or how people perceive the world around them, there are certain elements that are always going to be present. There's going to be a belief in an ultimate reality. Is that ultimate reality a personal infinite God as we have in Christianity? Or is that ultimate reality an impersonal force in the universe? And and so when people believe that, they would pray that somehow the universe which is impersonal. How can something impersonal respond to prayer? Somehow the universe would come together and and uh, affect some, something or somebody. Uh, but that that is their view. So you you either have a personal God or an impersonal God. There's no no in between. Um, the God of Christianity, the God of uh, uh, of Israel, it was a personal and an infinite uh, infinite God. But the God of Buddhism, the God of Hinduism is much, much different. The God of the New Age is this impersonal life force. There is no God in, uh, other than the material universe in, in modern uh, Darwinism. There's just eternal matter. 
And so you have ultimate reality. So the first thing you have in any worldview is, is ultimate reality. The second thing you have in any worldview is a way of knowing. How do you know anything? Uh, how do you know anything? And we've looked at this uh, uh, in the past, and I have a chart here to, to uh, uh, put up here for us to just review this, the basis of knowledge. On the basis of knowledge, there's basically four ways that people know anything to be true. The first three are the human viewpoint systems as rationalism and empiricism and then uh, mysticism. And in rationalism, the starting point is what's inside the head, what's between your ears. You start there, and somehow you're going to start with innate ideas. There's something embedded in you already I don't know how they could reconcile that with Darwinism, uh, probably wouldn't. Uh, you start with these innate ideas, and then just on the use of logic itself, you can start from a concept like Descartes had, uh, I think, because I think, therefore, I am. Uh, well, if I'm thinking, that means I'm conscious. I, I must exist because I'm thinking. So that gives me a starting point. I know something exists. I may not know you exist. I may not know this pulpit exists. I may not know anything. This may all be uh, a deception that God has has foisted on me, and I may be be just in a vacuum, and God is somehow... Uh, giving me these impressions, and they're totally false. But I know I must exist because I'm thinking. That was Descartes' foundational point. I think, therefore, I am, he said. Very famous statement, cogito ergo sum. He wrote in Latin. Um, he thought, so he has self-existence. Starting from that, he argued that if I exist, then can I prove on, on that starting point, using logic alone, can I get to God? He thought he did. Most people didn't. Um, but that's rationalism. It ultimately falls apart. Plato had a version of it in the ancient world. Uh, it's usually replaced then by empiricism. Empiricism is I'm just born with a blank slate. Aristotle called it a tabula rasa. It's just an empty, empty blank slate. There's nothing there. The only thing is that that, that gets imprinted on my on my mind is from sense data, what I see, what I smell, what I t uh, taste or touch. Uh, this is empiricism. And so as I look out the world, uh, I see things and I interpret them. Uh, now, the problem here is that, that the assumption is that I can accurately interpret what I see, taste, touch, and, and, and feel, uh, see, taste, touch, and smell. And, um, but again, it's based on logic. Well, that usually falls apart too because ultimately you can't get to ultimate reality uh, through through this way of knowing. And so historically, empiricism and rationalism are then replaced by the irrationality of mysticism. I know it's true, but I just have to take this leap into uh, into the dark and believe it's true even though my senses may all tell me something else is true or my reason may tell me something else is true, but... I just can't live as if, if, as if life is hopeless, that I'm just an ac accident of nature, that just because uh, sometime in the past some electrical discharge uh, did something to a blob of protoplasm, and now <clears throat> some uh, five million years later, here I am. I'm just the uh, result of an, uh, of an accidental electrical discharge on a piece of protoplasm. Well, that's a real hopeful, hopeful, encouraging uh, view of people. So what we see is that a view of ultimate reality, then there's a view of how we know things, and then there's a view of 
leads to a view of people, who we are, what we are, what our purpose is. Are we just an accidental result of, uh, 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 of nature, or is there a purpose? Now, divine revelation is the other way of knowing something. It's a witness tells you about something you haven't seen, or you haven't experienced, it hasn't occurred to you in your mind. So this valid witness tells you truth, and this is the revelation of God, and it's based on the dependent use of logic and reason. That is, it's not anti-logic, anti-reason like mysticism, but it is based upon understanding God's word using logic and reason as God shows us how it should be used within the framework uh, framework of, of, uh, of Scripture. Now, what's happened today is we're in this uh, category where rationalism and empiricism were rejected. That was the dominant viewpoint of what was what is known historically as modernism. Modernism came out of the uh, historic Enlightenment. The Enlightenment began around the uh, early 1600s. It's sort of a negative byproduct of the uh, Protestant Reformation. But in the Enlightenment, uh, there is an emphasis on what man can achieve through the use of reason and empiricism. Uh, but man could never really find answers, and so modernism was deemed a complete and total failure uh, philosophically, and the only hope is is mysticism. But we've got a new brand of mysticism today, because if I can't find a truth, how do I know if there is any truth? But everybody acts like there's something true. You say this is right or wrong. Uh, Africans say something else is right or wrong. Uh, Japanese say something else is right or wrong. Maybe we're all right. Let's just, there's too much knowledge. Let's just, everybody's right and let's all get together and not say, uh, if there's no external, uh, objective absolute, then everybody's right and nobody's wrong. And so this plays out in a lot of different ways, the silliest of which is that we don't want to have winners and losers in children's soccer games. So we're, we're going to give everybody the World Cup. And, um, of course, in the real world, that's totally fallacious, and it produces a generation of losers, which is what we have today, people who don't understand real competition, and they think everything ought to be given to them on a silver platter. And so since it's not, they decide to go down and uh, uh, demonstrate uh, against Wall Street in New York and Washington and all around the country because they're just a bunch of, of absolutely spoiled, rotten children who don't know how to think, don't want to work, don't want to put forth any effort to do anything, and just want everything handed to them. Article in the paper this morning talking about how uh, uh, some some protest where the protesters think are, are upset with the rise in tuition costs, rise in the cost of education. Education ought to be free. But haven't they understood nothing in life is free? Oh, the reason they didn't understand it is because their parents didn't discipline them because the parents never uh, brought consequences, negative consequences into their life or their bad decisions, and so now they're just a bunch of spoiled, rotten brats. And what's going to happen is those spoiled, rotten brats are going to see hope in socialism, and when they see hope in socialism, they're going to bring in a socialistic uh, government, give power to the government that's going to take away the freedom of their parents, and their parents will die slaves because they refuse to discipline their children. I know that's real negative, but see, this sin nature is negative. It's not politically correct, but that's the way it is. So this is part of a reaction to modernism, so it's been called postmodernism. It's been called postmodernism, and it comes along with something that is called multiculturalism. And multiculturalism started off as something that really wasn't that bad. It was the idea that we ought to understand the diversity in the world, that different cultures do things different world ways, and there should be a measure 
a a measure of respect for different cultures and what they believe. And that is true. But it in, in the light of the rejection of modernism, what happened is that uh, a realization that, while well, you have all these different cultures. They all cl- have different truth claims. They all claim this is right. This is their faith. Talk about contending for the faith from Jude. One culture has their faith. Another culture has their faith. And another culture has their faith. Uh, we can't really, since there's no external vantage point, we've thrown out the Bible, so we can't judge anybody by external absolutes. We have to say everybody's right. And anybody who comes along with a claim of exclusivity is just dangerous. They're dangerous. This is what our president called, uh, uh, called us, unfortunately, that uh, uh, people uh, who are Christians are just desperately clinging to God, uh, to guns and religion. That's the view of the secularist. That's the view of the postmodernist. I don't care if he may be a Christian or not. That's irrelevant. He thinks like a postmodernist. And he thinks like most of the culture thinks. That's why he'll probably get reelected. It's because he's their kind of person. He is a worldly kind of guy. And uh, when you only have 7% of the population that even thinks they have a clue as to where truth is, and you have a number of other people in the uh, or 7% of the population, you have another percentage that has some measure of historical respect for uh, establishment principles and uni- some universals in the Constitution, but we're, we're losing ground every day. Our, our, our lake has become a pond, and the pond is, is quickly becoming a puddle, and anybody who believes in Christianity is automatically deemed the bad person because Christianity is considered to be exclusive, and exclusivity is evil. And this is, they've been drinking this toxic, uh, waste dump of a philosophy for so long that anybody who comes along and says this is right and that's wrong is inherently an enemy of society. And this is why, uh, Bible believing Christians, in fact, if you talk about something being biblical, what they hear is this is going to oppress you. That's what they hear. Because they, they, they deem freedom as being able to believe whatever they want to, whenever they want to, because nobody has an absolute to say one thing is right and one thing is wrong. So part of the mental baggage of this contemporary generation is the idea that inclusiveness is good, but exclusiveness is bad. They view Christians as separatists who reject the cultural mainstream, which in multiculturalism, the cultural mainstream sets the standard. And um, so contemporary society embraces this kind of diversity for diversity's sake as the ultimate standard. So if you don't embrace that diversity and validate everybody in whatever they believe, then you are anti-cultural, you're anti-society, you, you, you are just the enemy. So uh, all of this is... Uh, influences the church. It influences a person who comes in off the street here who's never been taught very much uh, about the Bible. And so we have to understand that fundamentally when we start to contend for the faith, it is a battle for the for the mind. It starts between your ears. If you're going to contend for the faith, the first battlefield is between your ears. And uh, this is what Paul is talking about in Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 10, that we are to, uh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, for casting down arguments 
and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. Now, that's where we'll start next time, but we have to understand what these thoughts are. I mean, the Bible says we have to cast down arguments. The world says if you're going to try to cast down arguments, you're the enemy. And this is becoming more and more evident today. So uh, the foundational uh, objective for every Christian is to contend for the faith. So you have to know what the faith is, and then you have to contend for it. That immediately marks you as being countercultural, and you're the enemy. So we'll find out how to do that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be challenged in this area of, uh, of contending for the faith and learning how to do it. And that uh, we pray that you would help us to understand these principles and to have the courage to take a stand for the truth because it's the truth because you have revealed it to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.